Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Live Borders podcast, where we will be looking at some of the projects we are running over lockdown and beyond, with a special focus on culture and well-being. Coming up, what we learn from a collection of diaries written by a Selkirk GP in the early 1900s and donated to the Heritage Hub. You're learning about a bit about his everyday life. He always sets out the diaries in the same sort of format. So you're getting a bit about the weather and then it'll be saw 12 town cases walking, which meant he walked around the town. But first, what does it take to look after the collections we have across our museums and galleries? To make them accessible for us to see and enjoy now and to preserve them for future generations. Phoebe Stewart is an assistant curator and one of a small team of curators at Live Borders responsible for managing our collections and sharing the stories and histories of each of our artefacts. I talked to Phoebe recently and asked her first about her own journey into the role of a curator at Live Borders. I guess from being ever so tiny, I've always had an interest in primarily the arts. Um, I've always been really into um, looking at artists' work and going to galleries. And I guess that's where it stemmed from. So when I was at school, I... Um, studied art not so much history um, but more of the art side and textiles um, and I was very interested at that time um, about contemporary art and at that point in my life um, the movement of the YBAs the the young British artists were really in effect and I got really excited about sort of um, that kind of art movement of Tracy Emin and um, the Saatchi Gallery and so I really had a love of it. And I guess I went off to university and studied contemporary visual arts. Um, and I, at that point, I thought I was going to be an artist and um, actually showcase my own work. And um, later down the line, it's, I guess it's just by chance that I ended up getting a job with Tweeddale Museum as a as and when project worker. And absolutely loved um, the process of putting on exhibitions and being involved in that um, idea of exhibitions from initial concept right through to interpreting collections for the general public and different types of audiences and I really loved that element of it Um, and so went off to study um, museum curation at St Andrews and and the rest is history, really. I think that I've always had a love of of the arts and the cultural sector. We have uh, a number of museums and galleries across Live Borders, and you're one of a, of a small team of curators. So, how would you describe the role of a curator at Live Borders? Oh, it's very varied. No two days are, are the same ever. Um, it's an exciting job and um, it's extremely rewarding. The main thing that us curators do is we look after collections and a huge proportion of our job is about collections management and maintaining collections for future generations um, and interpreting those collections um, for a wide range of audiences as well. So when they're on display and they're in our museums, making sure that people can understand what they're about and um, making them interesting and pulling out those really interesting stories about every artifact, because every single artifact within the museum collection is there for a reason. Um, 
and each artifact has its own story and its own history. So it's, it's making sure that we can get those stories across to all the individual um, visitors that come in. And, and, and that's the exciting thing. Um, so a huge proportion of our job is about collections management. And that is looking at donations to the collection. Um, we manage loans as well. So some of our collections go out on loans to other museums. And sometimes we have collections that come in on loan to us for exhibitions. We do purchase a lot of collections as well, mainly through the treasure trove, um, which is um, archaeology, so finds in the ground. We will purchase those when they've been found in our, our local borders area. And then we do a little bit of conservation work. Um, so curators aren't conservators, but we are able to um, notice any conservation changes within artefacts um, and then we note those as well. Um, so we do a huge amount of work on what we call environmental monitoring, which is looking at the light levels in, in exhibitions and in galleries and checking temperatures and humidity. And we also set lots of insect traps. So as somebody that actually hates insects and spiders and all sorts, um, I do do quite a lot of setting traps and, and checking what sort of spiders there are. And then... We do a huge amount around, uh, certainly I do anyway, in my role is um, planning exhibitions for um, the year. So we have a very active programme of exhibitions. Obviously, when COVID's not around and we're open, we have a huge amount of temporary exhibitions. Um, and alongside that is sort of the planning of that and delivering those exhibitions and having associated events with those exhibitions. Um, and then another strand from that really is our education and outreach and, and, and sort of interpreting those collections and, and educating people about what we have on show and why they're important. And you've been with Live Borders for coming up for 13 years. Can you remember the first exhibition that you were directly involved in? What was that? Oh, my goodness. Um, do you know, when I, when I saw this question, I, I quickly added up how many exhibitions roughly I've worked on over those 13 years. And I think it's around 350 exhibitions, <laughs> which is quite a lot of exhibitions. Um, so what's a standout one from your early days as a curator with Love Borders? I think one of my most favourite exhibitions is probably um, a partnership exhibition that I did, which was a Robert Mapplethorpe exhibition, um, which was a partnership with National Galleries of Scotland and Tate Galleries um, through the Artist Rooms um, uh, initiative. And for me, that was really um, a complete change from the way in which I'd worked previously before because I was having to work with the Robert Mapplethorpe Foundation who are based in New York, the Tate Galleries and the National Galleries and so we're on different time frames. So first of all um, we were having to sort of shuffle information and get things signed off by the Robert Mapplethorpe Foundation at different times of the day to make sure we were you know because we're on different time zones. Um, I was doing so many different things for that exhibition but it was a, it was such a fantastic opportunity for us um, and I think I really enjoyed the sort of the, the different sort of partnership working and I think for me that's when I really got a taste of working on an international and national scale that I hadn't previously done in my role which I found really fascinating um, 
it was hard work, but it was really rewarding. I think it was bringing something new to the borders as well that we hadn't previously had um, and opening audiences' uh, minds to different types of works. So that was, it was really great fun. We had a really active education programme with that. Um, and obviously the subject of Robert Mapplethorpe's work can be quite controversial. So in sort of interpreting that work um, was, was really, really good fun as well. Um, and we had photography workshops along the way as well. So I absolutely loved working on that exhibition. That was a really highlight for me, I think, in my career um, that I'll always be really proud of as an exhibition. Mm -hmm. And it must feel good to to bring these exhibitions together and, and bring the artifacts to, to life and then open the doors and give the public the opportunities to, to be part of it and embrace it and, and experience that those artefacts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what curators do is about interpreting um, collections, exhibitions, objects for the public um, and seeing the public enjoying what, what we're putting on as a show is really rewarding, um, especially when you... You, you see school groups coming in for example and they're getting so much from that and they're taking that back to the classroom as learning um, and the thank yous and letters that you get and um, we, we ask for lots of feedback as well through our museums and galleries and I'm really pleased to say that a lot of our feedback is extremely positive from our customers and our audiences and so that gives validation that what we are putting on display is is really really you know people are loving it and they, they want to come and see it it's a really lovely rewarding job you know it's it's a really nice job to have and I love doing what I do you know for me it's it really is about those stories every art, artifact even if it's a you know a very contemporary artifact or a modern day artifact there's always a story behind it about the person that um, used it why they used it who they were um and there's so much that you can interrogate within each artifact or object or where it came from or what its use was for or why it was made in that way. Well, probably I'm just nosy, but <laughs> I like to really get into sort of understanding what artifact each artifact was used for and why and asking those questions. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And is there an artifact in particular that you've brought into the collection that you found especially interesting? Yeah, um, very, very early on in my career, um, there was an opportunity for um, somebody to go along to London to collect some um, some books. It was kind of put out. And um, I said, oh, I'll go. And um, when I went, I actually realised that what I was collecting was a really um, incredible artifact it was Mongo Park the explorer it was his diaries um, from his travels in the interior of Africa and I remember thinking oh wow this is quite an incredible artifact um, and I was thinking wait is this Mongo Park the explorer you know who was from Selkirk this is quite amazing um, and I went along and met his um, descendants descendants of Mongo Park and they were offering these these two diaries written diaries leather bound um quite beautiful artifacts I went along and I had my little wheelie suitcase and I packed them up and I put them in the wheelie suitcase and it was actually around about the time of that we just had the London bombings actually and I was getting back on the train 
And one of the things I had learned in museum studies was that you never ever leave an artifact ever. Um, it stays with you no matter what. Um, so I was thinking, right, I cannot leave, you know, leave this suitcase. It has to sit next to me on the, on the train. And I was just about to get on the train and um, I got stopped by a policeman saying, oh, we need to, we're doing searches of all bags at the moment. And I said, well, you can't search my bag here. I've got a special artifact in it. You know, you'll have to take me somewhere else to do it. And in the end, they just sort of thought I was complete completely bats and just let me on the train but um it's one of my um most sort of favorite artifacts it's the first artifact that i i um accepted into the collection as a green museum curator um and the diaries are amazing it, the significance that Mungo Park's from Selkirk but he was the first westerner to have reached the central regions um and uh, you know some really fascinating information in there that he was employed for 11 pound a month to journey through the unknown lands um you know to seek out the legendary city of Tambuktu and and try to find the course of the the river niger i mean there's some amazing things in there and there's some other little details about you know the the kit that park received that greeted him upon his arrival on the gold coast and how basic it was you know he had two shotguns two compasses a thermometer um, a small medicine chest a wide brimmed hat and an umbrella and you know it's just you know these little details and you think that's quite amazing you know nowadays you wouldn't just give someone to those, those bits and bobs um so i think that is my one of my favorite artifacts so the idea of a curator i think and correct me if i'm wrong is from the latin to care for so how do we make sure that these precious and rare artifacts are cared for over the lockdown when we might not necessarily have uh, people or staff in our museums every weekend yeah you're absolutely right i mean certainly in this last year in terms of being a curator and not being with our collections it's been tough um and we are ensuring that we are, are caring for collections um we might not be in and out of venues um daily or regularly but we do um care for the collection still so we are in a very fortunate position here in the Scottish borders that we have um, an environmental monitoring system called Hanwell. Um, it's based online. So we have monitors in all of our stores and all of our um, exhibition spaces. And that constantly reads back to um, our computers. So we could be sitting in our houses um, or we could be sitting in the museum office and we can see what the environment is doing within those stores. Which which has been um, an incredible asset to us during this last year. So I can log on and, and have a look at, say, store one or whatever, and, and see what's happening within there. And if um, the humidity is looking very high or the temperature is looking low or whatever, um, we can ensure that somebody can get access to that building and just double check what's happening with the collections. Thankfully, um, I have been keeping an eye on on the Hanwell monitoring and everything's looking good. Um, so I can assure everybody that the collections are still okay and they're being well looked after. Um, but it has been a challenge and I won't lie about that. And um, as a sector, I think cultural sector, we are certainly doing lots to ensure that we can keep looking after collections appropriately throughout lockdown um, and that we can 
we've got an exit plan so that when we are all back at the office and everybody can be back in with the collections, we will start to do collections checks. And we did do a little bit of that last year, um, near to the end of the year when lockdown eased a little bit um, and, and there was a little bit more movement. Um, we had staff going in and doing um, condition checks and sort of conservation collections checks. And if there was anything that we had any queries about, we took it off display or we, we did some work with it and put it somewhere different to ensure it was safe. So we'll be doing that again as soon as we get to move again and people are all back at work and, and um, able to do so, that's what we'll start to do again. But yes, I can confirm all collections are safe and happy. <laughs> Phoebe, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Fascinating work. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Phoebe Stewart, making sure our collections are safe and happy. In 2014, the Heritage Hub received a collection of diaries written by Selkirk GP Dr John Stewart Muir from his descendants, the Roberts family. The collection totals 40 diaries, an almost complete set from 1899 to 1938, when Dr John Muir died. Staff began transcription in the autumn of 2014, and the entries from throughout the period of World War I were blogged daily, 100 years to the day since they were written, and you can find a link to that blog on our website. Cathy Hopkirk is a local history and archive assistant at the Heritage Hub. She picks up the story from the day the diaries were dropped off at the office. In comes this chap, and I think they were in a, in a plastic bag, I can't quite remember, with a collection of diaries. Small wee diaries, smaller than an A6. He said that these have been in the family, we're not quite sure what to do with them. He, he was a doctor in Selkirk. Um, we can't read the writing. Oh, okay, let's have a look. And of course, we love stuff like this. Into the bag, out with the diaries. One of my colleagues, Elaine, took one look at them and, and read them fairly easily straight away. His writing is small, pure doctor's writing, and there's a lot packed into one small space because it's a small diary. And it was fab. And yes, they are hard to read, but once you get into the way of it, that's you, you're up and running. So all of a sudden, we have a collection of diaries that start in 1891 and go to 1938. We have local diaries that cover the period of the First World War. Wonderful stuff. It was an absolute gift. We had all this lovely material to work with. We started blogging them. We started with the 2nd of August. 1914, where Dr. Muir mentions that the war is going to start. And so we see what life was like in that time. And we finished 31st of December 1918. So it covered the whole of the four war years. Mm -hmm. um, and we all kind of grew to, to love Dr. Muir. When an artefact like that lands in your lap, what's the process um, to start extracting the information? Do you do you digitalize it or do you get the magnifying glass out for the tiny handwriting? What's the process there? We don't automatically digitize everything. So basically you're sitting there with a magnifier and working your way through it. But because at the archive, we're also a Scotland's People Centre, 
we have access to all the Scotland's people information, so births, marriages, deaths, census records. So in a diary, when Dr Muir says so-and-so died last night, you get onto Scotland's people, you know you're looking in Selkirk, you know you've got a couple of days, you can narrow it down, and there you go, the person's death with Dr Muir as the certifying doctor. Um, same with births. So you, you can put that in as information. This is all extra information that before we had this, we would just have the plain diary and whatever else we could find out. Now we have more ways of adding value to the collection. So through this, we've gone through all of Dr Muir's family. So his siblings, he was one of 10. Um, what happened to them? Where have they gone? So you can build up a family tree. You can go into as in depth or as lightly as you wish. There would be newspaper reports. Well, the newspapers aren't indexed and they're on microfilm. So what you do is, you know, you've got a week that week that the, the Southern came out. That's the week we're looking for. You go on and have a look and lo and behold, with a bit of searching, you'll find the report of the concert that he did for the Red Cross or anything like that. So there's lots of information there that you can find. He's getting letters from family members. You can usually work out who they are um, with a wee bit of digging. It's, it's a wonderful resource. And you'll notice if you've seen any of the blog, the subsequent information that we've found out has been added so that you're reading a diary, but you can also say, oh, who's that there? And there's a wee add-on at the end saying, and this came from whoever it was. So you've, you've got all that extra information, which makes it interesting. Tuesday, October 29th. A pretty good day, but clouds low. No rain. Cycled round town and to Riddle and Lily's Leaf. At the former, I saw Mark and also Mrs Keith Murray's child. The Greenhill Road is in a most disgraceful state. David and I called on Pollock regarding an appointment to be made under the Maternity and Child Welfare Scheme. It's not just a matter of transcribing what you see in the diaries. This is a starting point for uh, journeys that take you in all kinds of different directions around Selkirk and its history and its people. Yes, absolutely. And you're learning about a bit about his everyday life. He always sets out the diaries in the same sort of format. So you're getting a bit about the weather and then it'll be saw 12 town cases walking, which meant he walked around the town mm -hmm. to go and visit folk. But he also went out, out up the country as well, sometimes on horseback when he first started. Uh, latterly in the car, he had a driver. And also a bit about him as a man. He, he seemed to have been a very kindly man mm -hmm. and a very a man given to much given to service and looking after people so you get the flavor of what he was like and what the town was like you know and most important for him i think it's the people that he knows and the people that know him that that's my reading of it, it somebody else would maybe read that differently Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the war years. So what did you find out about his role as a, as a town 
doctor over that time and how the, the war might have had an impact on, on the way that he worked and um, the people of Selkirk as well. The diaries were mostly concerned with what was happening in Selkirk at the time. Mm-hmm. But every now and again, you'd get a wee, a wee snippet and you go, oh, somebody's son had died. Um, and you think, wait a minute, is that, that's Gallipoli. Let's go and check that out. Because you know by the date, you know, July 15, you know by the date that, oh, wait a minute, I heard word today that so-and-so's son had died in the campaign. So you're you're getting news from further afield, but it's just the everyday stuff that's going on round about them. It's the ordinariness of it that makes it extraordinary. Tuesday, November 12th. Another lovely day and hard frost. Influenza is still prevalent. Armistice terms published. Very drastic, but not a bit too much. Accounts of rejoicing all over the country. I cycle to Sunderland Hall via Curragh Street. All improving but Charlie, who has epistoris, and Miss Murray, the governess. He's working at the time of the Spanish flu pandemic. So there's, there's, no, there's no JAG, there's no AstraZeneca there, there's no Pfizer. It's, what can we do? Well, not a lot we can do we've just got to keep folk as comfortable as we can but he's recording how many cases they've got in the fever hospital um and how busy they are and i believe at one time i think it was one of the passages i transcribed uh his assistant at the time succumbs and you know he's saying he's got a fever of 104 and he's he's rambling but thankfully he comes through it when you're looking at that, you're again going back to Scotland's people and you would look at the deaths and see how many are being recorded due to influenza. Interesting stuff and very, very pertinent today with the COVID. And it must be quite nice for someone like you as an archivist and someone who has a real passion for history to form some kind of relationship with Dr Muir through his diaries and taking time to get to know him that way. Oh I, oh, I think we did. I think um, every member of the team that is, had any involvement with it just just took a fair, a fair notion for him. He was just a lovely man. You know, he was an elder at the Lawson Memorial Church. So very, um, very spiritual man, but a very practical man as well. And I think that comes through in his diaries. What, you know, what a decent person he was. Uh, he was awarded um, Freedom of the Borough of Selkirk in 1937 because of his connection to, you know, because of his service to the town. You know, he'd, he'd been there since 1867. Yeah, 1867, he, he came to Selkirk. Um, and by 1937, you know, they're, they're very well aware of him and, and what a decent man he was and, uh, and was, you know, and that comes across in, in the obituary in the, in the Southern. You know, they, they just, they really, really loved him. 
Kathy Hobkirk from our Heritage Hub and excerpts from Dr John Muir's diaries read by local actor John Nicholl. And if you want to see how tiny Dr John Muir's handwriting was, head over to our website at liveborders.org.uk. And if you like, leave us a review and subscribe for the next episode of the Live Borders podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.